And we're back. We're off. Rogue Table Talk number 74. Here we go. Here we go. 74 is not a number that corresponds to anything <laughs> in my... I don't have anything for 74. Probably the least picked number when someone says, choose a number between 1 and 100. Yeah, that's its claim to fame. It is the... 74. <laughs> <laughs> right before 74. 74. <laughs> right. Uh, but that's where we are. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, the passage where... Um, John chapter 2, where Jesus turns water to wine. Uh, but I kind of want to start out with, um, you know, maybe, have you ever been afraid you're, you have people over, you're going to run out of food? Have you ever been afraid that, you know, whatever, something like that, where you're going to run out of something and it's going to be, it's going to be bad. Have you ever been in that situation? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's been a few times where uh, we've had people over and I thought I'm going to have to eat a lot less than I wanted yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 no, I think it's sort of a common fear. In fact, I don't know the way I, especially the way I grew up, we always had so much. I think it, I mean, I'm sort of uh, inoculated against that by having too much food most of the time. Um but I've sometimes gone and, and, you know, been somewhere and I'm like, Oh, there's not enough food here. I'm gonna have to, <laughs> I'm gonna have to, to throttle back. I remember, yeah. uh, the first date I was ever on, um, it took 16 years old, I think took, uh, uh, Nancy, uh, my wife, believe it or not, I'm still, wow. still around. Yeah. To, uh, red lobster, uh, and I asked my brother how much money I needed. I said, oh, okay, I have, that's, that's, that's all I have. So that should work out. And then we get there and I look at the menu and I'm like, oh, oh, no. oh no. And I barely made it, but you know, I think I had the, whatever the popcorn shrimp or the, <laughs> the cheapest, I had the cheapest thing. Cause it's like, oh, I'm going to run out of money. So there's this fear of running out, you know, that um, it's odd that we as Americans, I mean, what do we run out of? You know, we're Americans, right? right? Actually, <laughs> patience. But it's even like when the pandemic hit, there's this irrational rush to buy six months worth of toilet paper. That is strange. So strange. And I was talking to somebody, somebody I work with, and they're like, um, it was he and his wife. I mean, that's they're just, just them. The kids are gone. And he was saying, you know, we have, um, you know, 24 double rolls or something like that. You know, I think hopefully that's enough until the, you know, the stores get like 24 double rolls. <laughs> There's two of you. What the heck is going on? What are you eating over there? <laughs> I, we had a neighbor who was selling toilet paper out of his garage. No way. I, he did. And I thought, that's low. That's super low. How much? Like, that's probably illegal. I'm pretty much, sure. I, I didn't even want to know. How much was, how much was he selling? You don't know. It's like no, 10 bucks a roll. Yeah, I really how don't. Much, and I was how, much, like, how much you got at home? I don't have any. Yeah. This is 20 That's 20 why I can't find any at the store because people like you have that's bought exactly it all right. and are selling it out of their house. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so we like to have everything in order. We like to make sure we're going to have 
enough and that we're going to be all set. And, uh, you know, we live in a country where that's possible, I guess. If you lived in another country and you ran out, I suppose, it wouldn't be as big of a deal maybe because, hey, sometimes you run out of stuff, uh, but not here. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think partly it speaks to a need for us to have everything set, everything in order. I don't want to worry about anything. I don't want, I don't want to think about anything. I don't want to depend on anyone. Uh, I want to be, you know, I want to be all set. And uh, we're going to, we're looking at this, this wedding in John two, where, you know, the unthinkable thing happens and they run out of wine uh, at a wedding. So let me read this passage, John two, starting at verse two, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana at Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love this passage of scripture, partly because it's so much going on under the surface. Like it's Mm -hmm. this sort of, you know, you have to sort of understand the situation, understand what's going on, understand how big a deal it would be to run out of wine at a wedding, you know, in first century Palestine. And then this conversation, I mean, the whole thing is so interesting uh, that, you know, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine, which obviously means more than, um, hey, it's hot out or, (laughs) <laughs> you know, some comment about the state, you know, hey, look at the dress she's wearing. You know, hey, they have no more wine. And there's some expectation that Mary has for Jesus. And because Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? Like, what do I have to do with that? My hour has not yet come. And that's enough for Mary to say, okay, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> Which is interesting. I mean, the whole thing is so interesting. Um, I mean, first it's, it would be a big deal mm-hmm. to run out of wine. Uh, well, it'd be a big deal to run out of anything at a wedding reception now. Uh, but I think it's probably a bigger deal. I think there tended to be, a, you know, sort of a bigger dealness maybe to the, some of these celebrations because people might travel in from or surrounding villages, um, you know, people might have stayed for a long time, hours and hours. Uh, and, you know, it's not like fresh, not like they had fresh water in abundance. So often wine was what people were drinking and, you know, it's a wedding. And so to run out of wine, that's bad. You know, that's a bad mm-hmm. thing. Uh, uh, but it, there's like, there's so much more going on. I, I, what is your response to that? to that passage and you're sort of picturing that in your mind of what, how that would have been to be there. Well, for a moment there, I was just wondering what did, how, when you address Jesus an invitation to come to the wedding, how did you address him and the disciples? Right. Right. (laughs) To Jesus, the son of God, ancient of days, would you please join our wedding? Right. Right. We would be honored to have your, yeah. RSVP. Do you want chicken? Yes. We are registered at. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, 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 I do love this passage too because uh, it is 
just on the surface level is very intriguing. And but there's so much symbolism. And I'm not saying it was only symbolic, but there's so much symbolism here. There's a wedding, there's wine. Jesus is going to do something around the wine. What's what is he implicating around kingdom, himself, bride, groom, wine, all of those things? Like there's no more wine. Is that is it that's true? And yet, is there also something John is signaling about a new order and an old yeah. one passing away? Right. So I, I love this passage. I do think it's very, very rich uh, with those, some of those symbols and questions. Yeah, it's sort of poetic. It's sort of, um, it, it's not, you know, it's not like Paul writing his letters where everything is sort of spelled out in, in logical order. There's this sort of this a scene in a movie sort of thing. And yes, there's, you know, new wine, new wineskins, uh, an old order passing away, a new something uh, and, you know, all of that somehow is implied because even in, in Mary's, you know, the statement, they have no more wine. Like, I'm expecting you to do something about that. Jesus's reply is, my time, my hour has not yet come, mm-hmm. implying that there is an hour to come where weddings and wine and such would be appropriate as it relates to Jesus. But now is not the time yet. And yeah. then she, her reply to that is to turn to the servant and said, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> like she right. knows something's coming. Uh, and it's just so, I, it, it's so poetic and so kind of meta. And I think that's, it's the first of the signs of the book of John. Like, you know, we talk about these uh, eight signs, I think, in the book of John. Um, and it's, this one's not in, this is the only gospel that appears in i believe mm-hmm. uh and it, the disciples are there so it's not only john other disciples are there and they didn't include it um and it feels like it somehow then tells us something about john's gospel that it's a bit more meta a bit more big picture a bit more theological he's saying something you know larger it's a clue to something in the bigger story or something. I, I'm not quite sure exactly, but I think it is significant that it's one of the signs. It's the first sign in the book of John, and it's not even included in the other, in the other gospels, even though they were there. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, the signs with John. Yeah. Yeah. I do think John is very, very thematic. Uh, and so there's there's signs, seven signs, I think, maybe? I think seven or eight. I'm not sure. if Maybe eighth is the resurrection. I, I think different people have different lists. I think okay. there's seven and then, and then there's the resurrection is, is, the, is the eighth or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's all the I am statements, you know, for John. Right. Very thematic. Right. And, right. And, 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 and the I am statements, again, are, are big, are metaphor. Like I am the bread of life. I am. The, there's these metaphorical statements of something mm-hmm. about. Uh, they're very characteristic of this book. Which is a bit uh, of a right. side note, you know, talking about the inspiration of scripture. Each God confines himself to culture and human personality to write scripture. And you mm-hmm. think of this and then you think of Revelation and you can definitely see John's similar writing styles of symbolism and meta. And there's layers of meaning going on here. Um so yeah, I think for me the signs uh 
if you, I, I believe, if you look closely at the signs throughout the Gospel of John, um, when Jesus performs signs, they don't result in a, um, uh, they don't produce faith. And I think sometimes that's what we understand signs to be like, well, if you just show them a sign, they'll produce faith. But actually what you see with the signs, especially in results to those who didn't believe, uh, different groups of Pharisees who said, show us a sign. And it actually simply confirms the position that you already have towards uh, Jesus, God, truth. It reinforces your position. So the sign gets displayed and then it it kind of firms your position up, which is, I think, very interesting in, in the book of John. That is interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an, like, it, it, it's not proof. Right. In other words, I mean, or if it is, it's not, I mean, even we're capable of rejecting proof and holding on to, you know, our preconceived, our priors. Uh, so it's almost a test of faith rather than a, proof of something yeah. right yeah, yeah yeah that's a good way to put it it so is how are confirmation you right that that you know there are sign signposts pointing that jesus is who he is and what he said was true but the interesting thing is is that people like you said people see what they want to see people yeah. hear what they want to hear and they take that data in and it, they usually use it to reinforce their biases often uh, so yeah that's very true. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and I think that's also frustrating to uh, to those of us who want to use a sign to convince someone um, when it's just not going to, I mean, I don't think faith in particular works that way. I mean, lots of other things don't work that way either, that you feel like you've, you've proven something and <clears throat> somebody won't go along with you uh, on it. Um, but in, you know, there's sort of the ears to hear, as Jesus would say, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Like if you're willing to see what this sign points to, then, then here it is. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, I can't, I mean, if you're not, I can't help you. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of speaks then to the method or the, the way in which God communicates to us that he, he's sort of uh, in some sense that, that works through sovereignty and our will, he doesn't hit us over the head. He doesn't bludgeon us into submission. He gives us signs Mm -hmm. and we we have the responsibility to respond. Not just the freedom, but we have the responsibility to respond to the signs in some ways, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it reminds me, I think it's in Luke. It would be fantastic for our purposes if it was in John, but I think it's in Luke where it's the uh, story parable of the wealthy person and Lazarus, not Lazarus and John 11 who died, but the poor man, Lazarus. Right. And, you know, the, the wealthy person says, you gotta, you gotta go back or I gotta go back and warn my, my brothers, you know, let me go back and tell them. And Jesus says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Like, the sign won't convince them, right? I mean, the resurrection right. happened, and it. What did right. it do? It, it right. divided in many senses. You know, right. they have yeah, the something Pharisee. already. Right. Right. Yeah, and then be, because the resurrection happens, 
And, you know, the Pharisee, many Pharisees don't stop and consider, oh, what if he was right? I mean, what yeah. if instead of they must, oh, well, they must have stolen the body or something like I've just, I can't go there. I can't go to where the sign is pointing. And so I well, won't, me, I refuse. Let me, let me tell you this, this, this may uh, help uh, our conversation. Um, because I do think it's two ways of going about life. And it's two ways of viewing the world. And one way is I am set in my position. Therefore, any data that is presented, I'm going to use it to interpret my position, confirm it. And if it challenges my position, then it clearly can't be true. So I'm going to do whatever I need to to the data. So our 11 year old, um, she uh, went to the eye doctor when she was in, I don't know, um, third or fourth grade. She got glasses because she had some eye challenges and whatever. She needed them to read. Uh, she needed them to look uh, closely at a computer. So she's she's she has these glasses and then she hated them and she didn't want to wear them, but she had to. So then two years, like a year ago, two years ago, she stops wearing them. And I'm, I'm like, hey, Tay, you need to wear your glasses to read. And she goes, no, my eyes are better. And I, I was like, that that doesn't happen. Your eyes aren't better. Mm-hmm. And she goes, no, my eyes are healed. And I said, no, I'm sorry. It's not the way I understand it. They're not healed. And so we, we battled back and forth with this probably a year ago on. And I said, you need, I have a headache. Well, you need to use your glasses to read. No, my eyes are healed. They're not. Okay. So, so my position was that doesn't happen. Your right. eyes aren't better. Everything. Once you, you have me, glasses, you have glasses forever. Literally she goes to the eye doctor and the eye doctor tests her and tells her, your eyes have corrected themselves. You don't need glasses anymore right now. Hmm. <laughs> so I was completely wrong, but all the, uh, I was like, I'm right. And so every time we argued all of her data, I completely rejected it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yes. Uh, that's right. And we do it all. The, of course, of course we do it all the time. Right. Uh, it causes us to, uh, I had a conversation with, Somebody and he was talking to this uh, this friend of his who's atheist and basically all he wants to do is rely on facts to decide uh, mm-hmm. how you know what's true about the world and how to how to live and you know I just said that it doesn't work like you have to interpret the facts you have to pick which facts are significant which facts you're you're skipping over I mean the fact that your daughter was telling you that you just disregarded. Right. Because, well, I just not whatever that that's not meaningful. Um, and you can't get from facts to how to live because there's judgments of value, just judgments in there that you have to make. Uh, and I think we want it so clean. Uh, that's partly the, the draw of it. And so, you know, Jesus gives us these signs. God brings us these signs in scripture. Jesus and the gospels gives us these signs. And. At the end of the book, it tells us what the signs are for. In John 20, 30, it says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Mm-hmm. So John's saying uh, that, you know, that God is telling us in his word uh, that John has penned that uh, these aren't all the signs. Um the signs, you know, we get something about what it means for Jesus to be God and something about the kingdom and something about the big story uh, in each of these different signs. You know, there's healing and there's, you know, 
death to life and so on. And this sign with the, with the water to wine, we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but the overall purpose of them is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The whole point is all of these signs point to this central fact that this is, is God's son who's come so that we might have life in his name. Uh, and that kind of speaks to your, the signs, uh, because faith is faith. The signs are simply guideposts to faith and you have to walk the path. Yeah. Uh, and of course God gives us faith and there's a sort of interplay of sovereignty and free will. But at some point we can not look at the signs. We can ignore the signs. We can, whatever, you know, we can miss the signs. Uh, and that's the point of this. And so this is the first of those signs. And so something about this episode is going to tell us that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was to come, the son of God, and that, you know, we have life in his name. Um, and so that, in that, that, that response of, you know, why, why do you involve me? My hour's not yet come is sort of points us in that direction. So let's look at, let's look at the rest of the passage and what happens. And then we can talk about it some more. So Mary says, do whatever he tells you. Uh, verse six, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So they're big. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Uh, and so the water has turned into wine. The servants do what he says. And it's not only wine, it's the best wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> there's a, there's a, well, let me just, I'll read verse 11 and close the passage. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So it's not simply a trick. It's not a magic trick. Hey, look what I can do. I mean, there's more going on. So let's talk about like, what is the more that's going on here? Like, what is the significance? My hour has not yet come, the water, the wine. Why is this a sign that Jesus is the Christ? And why would it produce faith? Why would it reveal its glory? Yeah, I think I think for me, this is where I kind of alluded to in the first part. You you see the six stone water jars, the kind used for by Jews for ceremonial washing. Um, so, and then you have the measurements, which were really specific to John. John I think John's always signaling, I I was very close to these things. You know, how do you yeah. know it's 20, 30 right. gallons? Well, he's there. That's right. He's there. It's like the scene in a movie being described. It's like you're watching it happen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then they have the water filling 20 to 30 gallons of six stone jars, and then Jesus turns it to wine. But it's not just any wine. It's the best. It's the choice wine. It's the best wine. And then uh, then there's a compliment to the groom. You've saved the best till now. So, yeah, all of these things to me symbolizing uh this not not complete overthrow but in a sense taking what has come before and 
doing something new. I want to be careful not to say Jesus is overthrowing what came before because it wasn't it wasn't bad. You know, Leviticus mm-hmm. and Exodus, those were good for their time in that season. But now Jesus came and he's the new Moses and it's a new Exodus and he's the new temple. And so this is to me what I think he's symbolizing is you have to cons- now now the people around him have to wrestle uh, deeply with a new revelation from God. Uh, God revealed himself through Moses and these ceremonial washings were how we related to God, how we were cleansed before God, how we experienced forgiveness for God. And Jesus is now challenging all those uh, long held traditions and presuppositions. And it wouldn't have been lost on them as much as it's lost on us, just because we're not in that culture. It wouldn't have been lost on them. Those deep seated challenges of what his actions really causing them to wrestle with, uh, who is this person? Even if they don't quite get it yet, who is this person and what what's going on? Um, and I think too, there's something there with the kingdom related to uh, abundance. Um, I think it's Isaiah 25. I think it's Isaiah chapter 25, where Isaiah prophesies on this mountain, uh, there will be no more death and he, you, you will have the choicest of meats and the choicest of wines. And it's this illusion of the consummation of the kingdom, which which we know is when Jesus returns, this abundant uh, life, abundant joy, uh, festive festive joy. I think Tim Keller calls it. Of it's our relationship finally, no sin, sickness, or sorrow, and it's like the best wedding reception that you've ever been to. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's good. I think. It's the old has been superseded. It's been succeeded. Mm-hmm. Um, not that it was bad, but the you know the old, the new wine, new wine skins. We don't need the old ceremonial washings anymore. The 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 new washing is here. All of that is signaled by uh, Jesus. Um, it's a sign to he is the one to bring this new order into being. Uh, and a lot of that's been being alluded to here in this, you being communicated in this, uh, uh, this, this, this vignette, uh, that we see. And there's a couple of places I want to go, but one, one of them is, and it kind of goes to the confirmation of your priors because there was a, there was a time not long ago, when, you know, it was largely believed by Christians in America that any, you know, your lips touching actual wine was a sin that, you know, the actual fermented drink was sinful. And so therefore this passage must not be referring to actual wine. Hmm. It must be, grape, must be grape juice. Like, because, you know, we all know drinking wine is evil. And so here's Jesus in this place where they're drinking wine. So it couldn't have been wine, hmm. even though, it's, you know, it's kind of this place where that was my prior. So that must be what this, the passage is telling me, even though in the passage, it's clearly wine. It makes no sense if it's not because, right. Hey, they ran out of wine. First of all, that, you know, everyone's had too much to drink. Like the impact, it's not grape juice, obviously. Right. You know, they're feeling the effects of the first wine. And then the guy says, Hey, you've saved the best you're wasting the best wine. They're not even going to appreciate it because they've had too much. Like the whole, 
the, the, the story doesn't make any sense at all if it's merely grape juice. Right. And, right? Uh, and to say nothing of the fact that in the ancient world, it w- they couldn't have kept grape juice fresh. <laughs> they didn't have refrigeration. You know, it had to be fermented. That's one of the reasons they drank wine because, you know, it, 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 it was safe to drink because it was fermented. Uh, and yet, it's despite all of that, because I, I, you know, I didn't really grow up in that. So I sort of could look at it from a side and I knew people who believed that. And I just thought, that's the weirdest thing ever. Like, how <laughs> bad do you need to believe that it's evil to drink wine? Mm-hmm. And I think it's just an illustration of, you know, what you said earlier, that we kind of have our priors. And, you know, this story comes and conflicts with our presuppositions. Mm-hmm. And we stick with our, we stick with our pre- we don't change our presuppositions. Well, I we love your statement. How badly do we need to believe it that we would take something so blatantly true and do all of these mental gymnastics to say it couldn't have been wine? Right. Right. Yeah. No. I, I remember, like I said, I didn't grow up in the faith, and so I was a you know I came to faith as a young teenager, and so some of this stuff was weird to me. And, you know, because it was new to me. And I remember I was at some winter camp and I was, I don't know, I was a freshman or something. And this guy was preaching that it was grape juice. It had to be grape juice. And I'm just like, what? It makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet everyone's there sort of nodding along. And I think that's kind of like, what? Do you, how open am I mm-hmm. to the signs that, that Jesus gives me, the evidence that he gives me, how open uh, how willing am I to hear what God's really saying? And I think that's part of what comes across in this in this uh, uh, the story in John is um, if I am willing to hear it, I, I can see that it will reveal His glory. Uh, just you know, that's what He says in, in verse eleven, and then you know, in, in chapter twenty, verse thirty, that if I'm willing to actually see the signs as they are, then they're there so that I may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing I'll have life in his name. Uh, And so now I kind of want to then keep that train of thought going and get to what is the significance of the wedding and the wine. Uh, And I think part of, you know, there's many things obviously going on. It's a pointer to who Jesus is, but you know, in the book of revelation, we see a wedding uh, and we see wine. We see Jesus referred to uh, in the upper room. He's having wine. The cup is being passed around. And he says, this is the last wine I'm going to have until I drink it in the new kingdom. And then in, uh, uh, you know, uh, later on in the book of Revelation, we get this picture of a wedding, uh, you know, the wedding supper of the lamb. And that seems to be what, to what Jesus is referring that my time will come where there will be a wedding and there'll be wine, but it's not yet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this is sort of a pre this whole thing is sort of a precursor as we're in this big story of there will be a wedding. We will be in it. You know, there will be wine in the kingdom to come. Uh, there will be a wedding. Some, you know, we will be the bride. He is the groom. There is the celebration that uh, I think it's Revelation 19, I believe. Um, and I think I think we see early signs here in the very first part of the ministry of Jesus where he's pointing to something, the fulfillment of, 
like this is all going somewhere and uh, that this is a pointer to the glory that he will receive uh, someday, ultimately. Uh, it's a precursor. It's a hint. It's a foreshadowing of this wedding to come. So what do you think of that idea? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think um, when Jesus talked about our, um, I, I took a class in the Gospel of John in undergrad, and I, I took another one as an elective in uh, seminary. When he talked about um, my hour, it's often referring, well, I think often, maybe always in John, uh, to the to the hour of his suffering, uh, to the cross. And so I think it's interesting here that he talks about the hour of his suffering, but it's in the backdrop of a wedding, and it's in the backdrop of uh, his glory. And I think it 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 also invites us to hold that intention of looking forward to the ultimate uh, consummation and wedding and where another interesting point where Jesus takes up another towel and serves as the host mm-hmm. at the, mm-hmm. the, the marriage supper right. of the Lamb. Um, it's, 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 <laughs> well, that's a tangent, but it's Jesus serving us again. And, uh, but at first inviting us to, in order to experience this type of deep festive joy and consummation joy, we must take up our cross. He took up the cross, his hour of suffering, and and it, it, he foreshadowed his hour of glory. Uh, I think mm-hmm. theologically the first coming is called the humiliation and the second coming will be called his exaltation. So uh, he will be vindicated and, and lifted high. Um, as foretold and foreshadowed the resurrection. But yeah. Yeah, that's another way of looking at it that I hadn't really thought of. You can kind of link this wedding and you can link, uh, you know, the Last Supper, the meal. So there's, you know, they're passing, you know, Jesus is, yeah, the host there. He washes their feet. He serves them bread and wine. Uh, and then Jesus says, I'm not going to drink the wine again until, you know, we are together in my kingdom. And there's sort of this arc uh, this big picture that we see uh, that uh, Jesus is foreshadowing the end of the story, partly. He's saying something about who he is. He's saying something about he is the one to bring about the end of the story, uh, superseding the ceremonial washings, you know, the old wine to the new wine. It's all sort of bound up into this <clears throat> this picture, this metaphor, this, you know, this is why I think you know, the God's truth, the gospel comes to us in story form. And because it does, it's there's so much meaning that's bound up into some of these passages because there's just a lot going on. Uh, and I feel like um, you kind of almost need to sit back and, and let it, you know, kind of marinate mm-hmm. in all the different things that um, is, are going on here. And it's not just a wedding. It's not just a trick. You know, it's not just a demonstration of Jesus's power uh, it's, it's those things and so much more than that. Uh, and that's, I just think there's, it's very beautiful, uh, I think. Right. And I think we can also miss, we can often miss the beauty. Uh, it's, and I don't know if scripture sometimes invites us into, there's this stories metaphor and we, we kind of can draw out some theological points from it, which is fine. But we're tempted to, 
reduce the story to the five theological points and then forget the story because the whole point is to have the five theological points. And then we just, all the mysteries sort of boiled out of it and all the extra stuff is sort of boiled out of it. And, you know, here's the, the you know, that's right. Don't we do that with scripture? Like here's the, three points. you know, here's the sermon, the sermon, here's my three sermon points. And the whole passage just boils down to that and yeah. all the other interesting stuff. Um, it, you know, we can kind of skim over uh, and maybe we miss something in the, on the way. Yeah. I think we talked about it two weeks ago, maybe last week about the, um, it's not that God's word doesn't have morals in it, but it's the hermeneutic of moralizing. And we can do that to this passage as well. Um, the, we, we don't necessarily let the story have its effect on us. We're, we're looking for, okay, but, but what's the moral of it? Like, how does it make me a better person or what's the example I'm supposed to follow as opposed to the stories this is inviting to is, is it is going to have a shaping effect on us, but as a story. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think we can easily miss the meta and the big picture of what's going on uh, when we treat, when we treat that as such. So do you think that we um, in our culture, maybe don't pay enough attention to gathering wine, joy, celebration um, in general. I mean, they do seem to play a role in this big story. Uh, And I'm not sure we always appreciate like this is part of who we ought to be, that we gather, that we have celebration, that we commemorate, that we remember, that we have fun you know, that we drink wine and we dance and we have fun and that's good. Full stop. Like not for some other purpose. It's just, it's just good in and of itself. Yeah. Full stop. And then we're going to, in the, in, in the next kingdom, we're going to be in a celebration. You know, we're going to be the bride. There's going to be a wedding celebration. And it's not just, um, it's not just me, you know, it's sort of part of, um, it, there's a, there's a deeper sense that this is something we ought to be doing. Maybe. I, I don't know that for me, I don't know that I really look at things that way. Maybe a bit too utilitarian, a bit too, uh, like what's the purpose of this? Um, when maybe the purpose is just to celebrate, there isn't anything more, right? Hmm. Uh, I don't know what you think of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. It's, it's interesting because I think that's, depending on who we are and maybe even our upbringing or uh, relationship to Christianity growing up, like why do we cast a suspicious eye on celebration for celebration's sake? Like partiers. We used to call them party, like, right. In your high school, like those are the partiers. (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and uh, you know, you know, maybe the church potluck was some version of gathering. I, the more I think about it, the more I think downplaying meal sharing with others is probably offensive uh, to the scripture because meal mm-hmm. sharing and enjoyment and refreshing each other with, you know, good food and good drink and laughter. And that that's a Christ shows up in those places. Yeah. And that's very right. incarnational. That's yeah. the thing that that's the thing that scandalized the religious leaders. Right. Right. 
It's not always yeah. what Jesus says. It's who he has at the dinner party and what he's doing. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Right. Yeah. Right. It's not just that he happens to show up. It seems like it's part of the point of yeah, yeah, yeah. The deal is, you know, he's. It happens all the time that he's at, you know, so and so at Simon's house with all the sinners. That he, you know, hey Zacchaeus, come eat with like Zacchaeus. You know, it, it's just happening all the time that there's something there that I think we're a little bit. I don't know. We skip over. Or we're a little too cerebral. Um, you know, there's something there that I think we probably need to think about. I, I, I do think you're right that this this getting together over meals isn't, um, you know, it has an importance in its own and, and God shows up in those places. So, uh, yeah, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, you know, as we're winding down this, this podcast, other than to maybe think of, you know, what is, um, how, I guess, how do I question my priors? How do I question what, what presuppositions do I have about the story I'm in, about who I am, about what's important, about who Jesus is, what am I missing? And, and then, um, do, am I open to, um, for me, Mary's, Mary sort of gets something here that I think I need to get more of like, okay, Jesus is here. He's the son of God. I'm not exactly sure what he's going to do, but something's going to happen. Do what he says. And then cool things will, will happen. Uh, and I just feel like that's sort of a pretty faith-filled statement, right? Like, do whatever he tells you, something significant's about to happen. Uh, and I think for me, that's one of the points of the passage is if Jesus is really who he is, then uh, then that's kind of what I need to do is something's going to happen. He's going to do something. I may not understand totally the significance of it before or after, or ever maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because he is the Christ, the son of God, I should do what he tells me uh, and participate in that and see what comes of it and trust what comes of it. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. That's one of my takeaways. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that um, in terms of how to respond in faith to this passage. Yeah. I think faith in this passage is being suspicious of your own biases, of your own priors, questioning those to the, um, not to the point of despair, but to the point of what do you have fresh for me, new for me, God? What thing, new thing are you inviting me to? How do I need to reconsider my relationship with you, with others? Um, is it a, as I think Brennan Manning, I don't know if he's coined this terminology, but is it, do I have a settler's theology or a pioneer theology like is everything already closed and there's nothing else that's going to get in and challenge me and it's all a done deal or uh is god continuing to grow me um and and consider how i might be open uh to what he might do and expectant i think as you know mary was expected she didn't know what jesus was gonna do but she knew that he was up to something i think that's good i think that i mean we're suspicious of a pioneer uh, mindset theologically, because of course, error is out there and that, you know, you could be leaving truth and heading into error, but of course you could be settling with error too. And in fact, we probably always are settling with some, you know, some part of our beliefs are in error to some way. And so to settle would be to harden those things. And so am I open to really what God is telling me 
uh, as I'm moving closer and closer to his truth. And, and to do that is going to require faith. It's going to require movement. It's going to require humility, uh, curiosity, and that we can, I can trust that I am in his hand and he's not going to let me get too far uh, as I move, try to move towards him. And so that's our encouragement uh, this week. Uh, is to be as Mary was, to be expectant of what God's going to do, do whatever he tells you, uh, and see what he does with it. Uh, And so with that, we'll leave you grace and peace. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Rogue Table Talks, a Calvary Church media production podcast. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts.